Hey, welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined by Mike Brown, professional rugby player having played for England with 72 appearances, Harlequins with over 350 appearances, as well as Newcastle Falcons and currently of Leicester Tigers. Expect to learn what it takes to stand out in an academy and get noticed, the value of work ethic, what makes good coach-athlete relationships, his awful experiences on premiership and international debut, seeking feedback, being consistent with the fundamentals and your strengths, planning to transition away from sport, and much more. But before we get started, please do me the great favor and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're following along on or listening on. It really does make a huge, huge difference. And it's the easiest and cheapest way to support what this show is all about. It allows us to grow the show and get on more guests, more episodes. So I thank you so much for doing that. In other news, don't forget to join The Game Plan, a free email that I send out every Friday morning with inspiration, motivation, and ideas on mindset, mental health, and your perspective. Simply click the link in the description below to join or head over to lewishatchet.com forward slash the dash game dash plan. Thank you so much, and I'll see you Friday morning. Also, if you're interested in developing your mindset or your mental health and know the value of putting your mental game first, you may find the MindStrong Academy helpful. It's an online academy designed to help you become a more confident version of yourself. Not only will you gain access to monthly mindset masterclasses, but also motivational videos, inspirational listening and reading, live podcasts and much more. The subscription is the cost of a coffee per week and you can get started with a 14-day free trial. As well as this, you can have the option to sign up to the MindStrong Mindset course and as a part of that offer, you can get the MindStrong Academy completely free for life. As a listener of this podcast, you get a 20% discount by using the code RYGMindStrong at checkout. That's RYGMindStrong at checkout and there's a link in the description of this episode. I'll see you inside. But on to today's episode with Mike Brown. Enjoy. Mike, thank you so much for joining the show. Really looking forward to this one. No, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Look, I actually didn't mention this just before a little preamble. Before we get in, stuck into to you and your career and and some insights from you, rugby at the moment, like rugby, this the we've now had three teams really struggle and be lost. What's sort of the temperature of the war in the inner sanctum of rugby from a player's perspective? What's it What's it like at the moment? Yeah, it's tough at the minute because on one hand, as a player, you know how much good that comes with the game, and we all love it. But all we see is constant negativity in you know the media and the press and people talking about it. It's such a shame, like I said, because we know what it can give you, and um, not just as a professional player, but you know grassroots and things like that, and what it's given us to our lives from young age upwards. Um, but then, as a professional player, it's frustrating because I feel like all the problems that have kind of come to a head now that were accelerated accelerated by COVID. You know the business problems and the clubs folding and and you know things like the league not being run well in terms of governance 
we've kind of been talking about as players for a long time. Um, and you could kind of see it coming, coming, I think. Unfortunately, it has now, which will f- probably force, hopefully force some positive changes, you know, in terms of the league structure and how um, clubs are being run and things that should have been happening a long time ago, you know, making it more professional. So, yeah, we'll see. But, yeah, it's just frustrating. Um, it's frustrating because as a player, you kind of saw an up tra- upward trajectory of um, wages, which I think, you know, should be the case in, with what rugby players are going through. And I'm just go- going from rugby players' context, not whole sport, but yeah, yeah, yeah. what they go through and how physical and tough the game is and where it leaves you at the end of your career. You know, we thought the wages were in it going in the right direction but unfortunately the way businesses were run and the league was run you know that wasn't aligned with with those wages so now it's obviously come to a head and wages are going to have to drop so it's frustrating because you know there's guys out there paying for peanuts and getting their heads kicked in every single day of the week you know and it's talked about how how much player welfare um how much stuff's happening with player welfare at the moment and how tough it is and even with all the amazing stuff that rugby's doing in terms of that um, management and and um, care and things like that, you know, it is a tough sport. Um, so yeah, we need to we need to start growing the game and make sure businesses being run well, so players' wages can get to where I feel they should be in terms of what players have put themselves through physically and mentally. I'd never considered that. I'd never considered that the fact that you're putting up that equation of how much punishment you're putting your body through to your wages and, and that being a big part of it. I mean, cricket sport I played has got a high injury rate, but you're not you're not being literally tackled by players. You can you can you can get indirect injuries that could end your career like what like I did. It, had, it was a sort of self-inflicted injury if you sort of put it that way, but there's sort of no I guess there's sort of no end to what could happen with a rugby player now. I think uh, I've never really even had that in my mindset when I went into a, my career thinking, okay, I need to earn a certain amount because what potential could come off the back end of it. And I, I've had people in, on the podcast who had to end their careers through concussion um, at a young age rather than, I mean, you're, you're 37 playing and you, I guess you would class yourself as a lucky one to, to get through for as many years as you can. And those head injuries are just one in loads of injuries um, which are actually more um, happen more regularly, more common. So, um, yeah, it's tough. And it's, the thing is, people see or read about the high end, mostly wages that that players get. Probably the internationals or the top players and think, oh, it's, it's amazing. Look how much they get paid. Which is which is true. Like we're incredibly lucky. Or we, historically, we have. I don't think people think that with some of the contract contracts I'm hearing now, but you know, we are lucky to get paid to do what we love and, and pay very well. But I always say to people, yeah, we're paid very, you know, most of us very well, or some of us very well, sorry. And then it goes down the ladder. But if you try and stretch that out until uh, retirement age, it would actually look very, very, very small. Um, right. I was reading the other day that the average the average um, rugby player um lifespan now in terms of playing is seven seven years i think so for me after 19 so i'm i'm one of the lucky ones but you know trying to stretch out seven years worth of pay and a lot of them aren't getting paid what the top players get paid till retirement age so 
like peanuts. And then we're talking about, you know, concussions, ACLs, knee injuries, you know, yeah. dis- hips, elbows. You know, I know players that were had to retire. I think one of my best mates in rugby, 25, for, and he's already had um, two, I think, um, hip replacements and things like that. It's just like, you know, it's not great. And how you leave the game and the standard of life you're going to have after that can affect what you can do work-wise after. And, and that's just the physical side. Then there's the mental side that is rightly talked about now more in sport, how much of a toll that plays on you. Um, because again, there's a lot of things people don't see on the mental side and, you know, how it affects you with selections and injuries and contract situations. You know, sport is so much in the public eye now. So you're constantly getting assessed, whether it be from someone on social media, your mates, your family, everyone knows what you're doing, whether you're getting selected or not. Um, whereas in other jobs, no one no one knows what, what's happening at your work. You can just get in, get, get your job done and get out. But, you know, we're assessed from the outside world, but also... 20 you know as you know as an ex-athlete 24 7 um from coaches and peers and you know everyone at the club um yeah you're constantly being assessed and that weighs on on you mentally as again as you'll know so there's all that sort of thing that people don't take consideration for but also that feeds into your family as well so for me with a young family my wife's living and breathing this with me so then it plays a toll on her and then you know, it's a vicious cycle because then I see it, it affects her and then that affects me even more. And oh. it's just, you know, there's so much stuff I think people don't take into consideration, but I do appreciate and understand and I'm very thankful for the job I've had up till now. So there's that side yeah. of it. Do you think what's happened in rugby this last year is what it needed to make some change that it sounded like you've forecast? Yeah, I think I think it's hard to say at the moment because the changes haven't been made. Um, okay. Discussions I've had, mainly due to my transition work. So, for example, with uh, the CEO at Prem Rugby, Simon Massey-Taylor, really good guy. He's inherited a lot of the bad stuff. So in an unfortunate way, and we never, no one ever in rugby ever wanted this to happen, three clubs folding, it's allowed him to push harder for the stuff he wanted to happen, which he was probably struggling to, get over the line with all the different stakeholders that are in, in play, just trying to get one decision over the line for him. He has to speak to like, I don't know, 10 plus different sets of people and boards and all that sort of thing from the RFU, Prem Rugby clubs. So actually how unfortunate it is, he can now push on with some of the stuff you know, in, in terms of governance and structures and systems that have been very amateur in a professional game. So until those changes come through and we start seeing a positive trend on, on things, it's hard to say, but hopefully that is the case. Because um, like I said, you know, from someone that's in rugby, been in rugby since the age of five, I know how great this game is, great this game should be seen, what it can offer a, lot, a young person, um, not just becoming professional, but just in their everyday life, discipline, resilience, um, uh uh, teamwork, um, communication, understanding others, relationships, and then the enjoyment you get from being part of a team. You know, rugby can offer all that, not just in professional, but all the way through the uh, the ladder. So it'll be a shame to see that kind of die away. Such a great sport. Um, it needs to grow. And it should grow because it is a great sport. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, just as a fan, I love watching it. I love, I've, I've almost, without a doubt, far prefer going to Twickenham than I do any other stadium football context. That's for sure. Um, there's nothing better than going to to a game at Twickenham. I don't think. Uh, so for you, how did you actually get into rugby? Like, where did it start? What was the the journey for for Mike Brown? Yeah, so it started for me at the age of five. It was always a natural thing for me to go into at a young age because it was um, it was on both sides of the family. So my dad played a lot uh, when he was younger and then he was a fireman so that he played in the fire service team and all that sort of stuff. And then on my mum's side, with my uncles and stuff, you know, it was big in their family. So it was always a natural thing that I was going to be taken down to my local club as soon as I could, you know, I, had, I was the age to do that. So... Yeah, I went down there and I, I was the classic um, kid that didn't like it to start with. I think most most uh, guys tell the same story. They go down there, they sit on the side and I'm not wanting to get involved. Probably because I was quite a shy, introvert person, young lad anyway. So sat on the side and watched them kind of, I think it's British Bulldog they were playing and saw how much fun they were all having and then you know, slowly kind of dipped my toe into it and then... Yeah, as soon as I got into it, you know, I never looked back and, uh, yeah, just, you know, just enjoyed it um, so much. Yeah, I loved it. What, was there a moment that you can sort of think, yeah, this is what I want to, I want, I want to do this now. I want to do this as a profession. Well, when I first started, and this shows my age a bit, it wasn't professional, so it was never really a thing. <laughs> like, I don't think I ever thought of it as a possibility until maybe like sixth form college when I was like, I've been 16, 17. Uh, and that's when I kind of got the link with Harlequins. So basically back in those days, you could um, you could go to Harlequins on a Tuesday and Thursday night. Um, anyone could go and train. And the academy guys uh, of that age would also train on, on those nights. And then what they would do is pick an under-19s and 21s team um, from those training sessions to link up with those academy players. So any position they didn't have an academy player in, they would pick from those those guys that had just come for, for training. Um, so I you know, started doing that. Um, a couple of lads in the upper sixth were doing that. And I went to college and actually you know, got in the first team pretty quickly. And they kind of took me under their wing, um, as you do as, a, as kind of a, an older player. And they were doing that. So I wanted to join them to do that. So they used to drive because I hadn't passed my test at that age yet and they they had so they used to drive from Winchester to Aldershot which is where Harlequins used to train so I jumped in with them and then my dad would pick me up from Winchester because we were in Salisbury which, which was like half an hour from there later on in the evening so started doing that with them um, took me a while to kind of get into the team um, and then from there yeah got in the 19s got in the 21s and then when I was like 17 8 18, I think it was, playing for the 21s, I kind of got picked up to play in the Harlequins second team. So it was like their first team players that weren't getting picked on the weekend, mm. have second team fixtures. And again, they needed guys to slot in in certain positions. And one of them was fullback and I'd been going pretty well in the 21s at fullback. Weirdly, I was going to Worcester with my old man um, to look at the, the university there, which was linked to the Worcester Academy. So I was going to see Nigel Redmond, who was the... Now works the RFU. He was the Worcester Academy uh, head 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 guy, head coach. I think you had to like speak to them, have an interview, and see if they would accept me on this course. And I was on the way down there, and I got a call from Colin Osborne, the academy manager at Harlequins, 
asking if you know I could play that night for the second team. And obviously I was like, yeah, straight away. But then realised I didn't have any boots or trainers, like any <laughs> sports trainers. I was just there going in casual gear. I'd left my boots at home and I was halfway from Salisbury to Worcester. So that was like you know, a couple of hours, hour and a half. But luckily Worcester was next door to, to Gloucester, which was where the Quinn's game was. So that helped. So we got went to Worcester and we had the meeting with Nigel Redmond and looked around the uni and stuff. Stayed, stayed there, had some dinner, went and got some boots from like local sports direct or something like that, some, some like sports trainers. So at least I looked a bit sporty and I think I got a tracksuit as well because I think I was in jeans or whatever. Um, turned up to the game um, and I arrived maybe half an hour before the team had arrived on their, on their coach from Aldershot. So I sat in the, the uh, Gloucester away change room on my own. I didn't really know where I was supposed to be. I just assumed I was in the subs bench. So I went and sat at like the number I thought I might be a subs bench. And then they all started coming in, the Quinns guys. They're coming in and I knew one of the other academy lads who I'd have been playing 21s with. He was like, oh, why are you sat there? That's my number. I was like, oh, well, I just assumed I was bench. He was like, oh, no, you're starting at 15. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what's going on here? I'm really not ready for this. But actually in a weird way, it probably helped because I had no time to think about it. And then I just had to try and learn the calls quickly, learn the names of some of the others in the back line. I knew most of them, but not all of them. And then it's just like thrown into it and just had a good game, managed to score a try, which helped. But yeah, off the back of that, ended up playing the rest of the season with the second team as well as the 21s as well. We won the second team league, got, got a medal, and then off the back of that, got signed up the year after, as soon as I left sixth form college to join full-time in the academy. So it's just weird how things work out. I could have ended up... Yeah. So the uni didn't happen. The uni didn't, uh, uni didn't happen. So then I had, yeah. I had a, a place at St. Mary's Uni, which is just down the road from Queen's actually, but I deferred it for a couple of years. I, I just wanted to focus on the rugby and just see how it went. It, yeah. And well, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, no, that, it's amazing. I, I want to actually go back to when you were in the academy and I want to ask you, what were you, can you kind of picture yourself as an 18-year-old and the mindset you had in an academy to try and stand out? So there's always athlete. There's a bunch of athletes that are going to be going into academies and there'll be people listening to this or young people that will be listening to this that might be either trying to get on an academy in one. And so what is it that do you think helped you in those settings, in those academy settings, youth development settings that helped you stand out from others? Yeah, do you know, what? it kind of goes back to what you're saying, like a turning point was all when I realised when I could make a professional that was getting the, the the opportunity at Queen's Academy when I probably really shouldn't have taken a punt on me with a lot of guys that were in rugby playing schools like Millfield. So they kind of taken a punt on me. As soon as I got that opportunity, I went from someone who could, could do a bit of rugby, you know, had some skill, to someone that re understood what an unbelievable opportunity was for someone like me, especially, uh, and how like I was going to make sure that I didn't let anyone outwork me um, and miss out on this amazing opportunity I had because I wouldn't have another chance. Like I was like unknown compared to people in my in my um, academy group who, like Chris Robshaw, you know, was at Millfield School, rugby playing school, well known, played England 16s, 15s, 18s, whatever. And yeah, I played a bit of county and came from a sixth form college that did a bit of rugby and not rugby playing school. So I literally was like, there's no way anyone's going to outwork me. So I would 
So I, as soon as I went in, I was like, who's who's working hardest? And it was Chris Robshaw. Go back to him again. He he was the one that stood out in terms of work rate. So I was like, right, what's he doing? Okay, I'm going to try and better that and then do it for the back. So he was forward, obviously. So then I'd be like, right, I'm going to be the Chris Robshaw, the backs. And he stood out because of that. And I stood out probably because of that. So I turn up an hour before we start with the academy. Back in those days, we wouldn't be with the first team at all in the first year or two. So we would come in in the afternoon and I was commuting from Salisbury to Aldershot um, where some guys lived in the academy outside. So I would turn up like an hour early, get the rugby balls off Colin Osborne, the academy coach, and go and do kicking or whatever on my own. Um, and then actually a couple of other lads in the academy realised what I was doing and came and joined me, which was actually bit better because you had someone to do it with but you know just doing little things like that try and make myself stand out that way and then I think my competitiveness um made, made me stand out so like I like I going back to this opportunity I had I was going to fight unbelievably hard like I was not going to let anyone take it away so I think that you know stood out so the way I play now still is you know very competitive in people's faces, you know, don't back down, which is probably quite unusual for fullback, which is probably why I'm quite a Marmite player. But very early on, I realised that's the way I needed to be to make sure I get got the best out of myself for this opportunity. But also, you know, not probably realising that time, maybe st- stood out, maybe stand out. And coaches like that, you know, you're not going to back down, you're going to fight to the death, you're not always in a physical way, but never give up um, in fitness, in drills, in contact skills. And I think then that rolled on to being one of my super strengths as a, as a player in the first team and with England and things like that. So There's so much I love about that because I, it's almost listening to someone talking through some of my story. Like I, I went to a sixth form college. We didn't, have, we didn't have cricket. And I remember turning up at academies and thinking all of these kids that come from private schools I was like, I'm going to have to work harder than this lot. I'm going to have to like outwork them. Mm-hmm. And everything you've said there, nothing was really about your physicality, your technicals, your, it was, I'm working harder in drills. I'm, I'm doing more than the other guys. I'm looking for the person who I currently think is the best worker and then trying to outwork them. Do you think there's a big discussion in, especially in cricket at the moment, there's a big report come out about elitism in the game as well. And do you think having that, that sort of school background that didn't have rugby available for you and then instilled sort of this fighter's mindset that that helped you out? Yeah, I think so. I think that the the, um, the unusual pathway I had at the time, I think it's, it's better now, but um, for people from non-playing schools like myself, but back then, like a very unusual pathway probably helped. It probably helped. I came from quite, not an overly tough school, but relatively tough, like, you know, there's a lot of guys there you wouldn't mess around with. So you had to kind of look after yourself pretty quickly. Um, so that helped. But yeah, I don't know. I just I just think there was just that that kind of moment, that kind of realisation that, bloody hell, I've got an opportunity here. This could be my job. I can't, I can't. I don't really, I'm not really good at anything else. So I better make, I better make the most of this. And then I guess because you kind of get positive feedback and you kind of keep progressing, you're like this is working, right? I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing this sort of thing, you know, and keep trying to get better. And and then 
it's like you, then you get fueled by it's like a drug you want to, you want more and more and more and, and the more you get the more you don't want people to take it away so that that was it that was kind of what was happening as well I was going to ask so when you turn pro so then you've signed and you've you've now it is your job what's then motivating because it's it'd be very easy to transition into being a professional and be like I've done it I'm in this system is now going to be designed to keep me there I say professional, you... but my first contract was oh. 4K for the year. So <laughs> I was actually losing money to be there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah so essentially you're doing it as you, you're doing it as your job, Yeah. but you're now doing that. What What's your mindset in there to, or what you, how did you go about trying to keep that role? Like what was driving you to, to stay in, in the job and stay in the, in the sport? Yeah. So I've, I've always, and up until now I've always been that person where it's like, right, I've done that tick next. What's the next thing? So, right. I've got the contract. I've got this whole amazing opportunity tick. Right. What's the next? Okay. I need to be in a position to get the next contract, which I think it was still Academy at the time, but you did it year on year. So, right. I've got in the first year. Okay. Now I need to put myself in position to um, get that year two in the Academy. Right. Do everything I can to get that. That was the goal. Um, that was the sole sole focus. So I do everything I can to get that. Right, I've got year two. What's the next thing? Okay, um, first team contract. Right, I've got that. What's the next thing? I want to be starting fullback. And then from uh, just going ticking them off and doing everything I can um to, to get that. But those goals, how are you are you breaking them down? Are you saying, right, in order to get that first team contract, I need to be doing this, 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 I need to be at this level, I need to show this. What how are you breaking that very big goal, that long-term goal, even if it's a year away? How are you breaking that down? Yeah, do you know what? I probably didn't in my in my academy days. I don't think it was one of the things you kind of talked about. Or if it did, I was just like, whatever, I'm doing this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think as as I got older, then it was kind of breaking it down. Right, what do I need to do to become the starting 15? Or what do I need to do to stay there? But instead of probably, probably actually once I got, the 15 jersey it's like how am i going to stay there right i need to to it would be all about like am i preparing the right right way am i trying to get better in other areas um instead of breaking it down other ways if that makes sense or okay right england's the next goal what do i need to do to get there right i need to be consistently playing well for quids okay how am i going to do that right make sure my preparation the week's good and then just focusing on okay. probably doing it that way. But I didn't ever write things down or anything like that. It was probably more in my head. Whereas now... Is any of that sort of outcome driven? So you're saying like, I need to I need to put in X amount of tackles, tries. What are you, are you putting any numbers on that? Or you just, you, you said they're like, I'm, I'm, I need to prepare well. So that's something that's very much in your control, right? That's yeah. very much just consistency. I'm going to prepare them and then... I don't know if the game's going to be any good. I don't know, but I'm going to try and put myself in the best possible place to do it. What is there anything? Are you putting numbers on it? Are you not? What what sort of way are you going about that? I don't think I ever put numbers on it, to be honest. And maybe something mm. I should have. One th- one big thing I did do. So once I got in the Quinn's team and I was starting regularly 15 and I was push, trying to push for England and constantly getting back, oh, you're not quick enough, you're not powerful enough. Um, I ran a bit weird and all that sort of thing. So I probably looked slower than I actually was. But so 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 then I went to went and looked for the best person possible 
to change all this for me you know get me quicker make me a little bit better get more powerful so I went and found Margot Wells who was also also working with people like Danny Cipriani uh, Andy Gummersall it was through Andy Gummersall he was at Queens at the time ex-England number nine that, that suggested her and you know kept badgering me to go to her as well so I was like right I keep getting this feedback that's why I seem to be getting no opportunities with England okay I'm going to go do this so then um just improve my physical side of the game again no numbers really just just mm. working with her on the physical side and and then that led into my game um high balls early on so before I could get play, get picked for for Quinns um when I was in the academy uh I'd had a couple of runs off the bench of 15 gone all right but there was there was an issue with my high ball takes so I wasn't very good at high balls so the so the the head coach at the time, Andy Friend, who was an ex-fullback as well, kind of pulled me aside and obviously saw something in me, but just said to me, oh, uh, Brownie, what? They're just out of interest. When the when the ball's kicked in the air, you know, how do you feel about taking that high ball? Like, how confident are you? And I, um, about catching it, I was a bit like, oh, well, yeah, you know, like fairly confident. You know, <laughs> obviously <laughs> in my head, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, hit and miss, but you know, I'll give it a go. Like I'm doing with everything at the moment. And he was like, well, that's, that's the problem. That's the answer. You know, you will never play for Harlequin's first team on a regular basis until you sort your high balls out. You know, we can't trust you um, to do that. And that's one of the key, key skills for that position. And I was a bit like, wow. Yeah. You, yeah that's, uh, that's hit me pretty hard. You know, I was thinking, yeah, I'm doing my layer. You know, it's just going to be you know, straight into the first team, no problem. Um, so, so what I did was there was a guy who was also a fullback in the first team, a lot older than me, was uh, regularly starting called Gavin Duffy, and he's an Ireland international, and he was unbelievable high balls. He's from a Gaelic football background, so I saw how good he was and um, just pulled him aside. Look, I said, look, mate, like, um, can you help me with high balls? Um, I can see how good you are and I need to sort it out. And fair play to him. He he put loads of time and effort into helping me do that. And I'll never forget, never forget that because, you know, he knew that I was chasing hard for his position and pushing him hard. And he still, you know, helped me, you know, get better at that side of my game. Um, took a lot of time and effort. But then that ultimately got me picked and kept me in the in the first 15 for, for Quinns for 351 appearances. So, and it's, you know, probably one of the biggest strengths which everyone probably relates to if they talk about, you know, me as a, as a player, which is quite frustrating sometimes. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like if I hadn't done that, then, you know, I would never have played for Quinns in the first place. So just little things like that. As soon as someone says, right, you, this is why you're not getting the opportunity, go and, go and sort it out, go and work on it. That's amazing. That's actually, I don't even think you needed to put numbers on anything there because it sounds like everything you essentially were working on, you're just trusting that if I get it right, the numbers will come. That if I if I actually get these parts of my game in order, then I'm just going to be a better player. I'm just, ultimately, I'm trying to be a better player. Where some people could have easily heard that feedback and been like, oh God, they don't like me. I'm not good enough. Like I'm, I'm done. Like this is, I'm not going to make it. Whereas you're straight away going to like, right, how do I add more layers to my game? How do I improve? Yeah, it was like it was tough, like getting those that feedback. But it was for me, it was like, well, I've got no not I've got no choice here. That that's the reason they're saying that I'm not getting this opportunity and I have to get this opportunity. Like I it's not finishing here. So I need to go and find the best person to help me do that. And then 
off the back of that, then it turns into being consistent with it. So there's no point in me working with Gav Duffy on my high balls, getting the first team, stopping it and being crap again, because mm-hmm. then I'll get dropped. And I and, and I never wanted anyone to take away a shirt from me that I just fought hard to get. So then till to this day, like I still do high ball practice, even though everyone says it's one of my super strengths. I do 10 minimum after pretty much every session. I think every session, um, 10 minimum high ball catcher. I get one of the nines to do box kicks and I'm taking high balls. Um, so it's a constant thing and people just think it's something you've been born with or it's easy, but, and it's actually fucking boring, excuse my language, like <laughs> taking high balls for 19 years. Honestly, sometimes I'm like, I wish it was like indoor football where they banner um kicks overhead height you know in, in indoor football <laughs> there's no overhead over um overhead height kicks sometimes I'm like oh I wish they could ban it so I don't have to take high balls um and the same with my speed and, and stuff you know I wasn't someone that was born ath- ath- athletically gifted so I had to go away and work on that and still again to this day I see uh Margo Wells for for my all my training all my SNC training so I saw her today you know getting ready to go back into pre-season and I've seen you know I've been seeing her for i'd say 15 years now 16 years so you know you, once you get you know once you get good at those things that you need to go and get good at then you have to make it a consistent thing um otherwise it will just end up you know not a, not a good skill or a good good thing yeah that's that's so true that's so important like so i think i've had teammates that definitely i remember watching them or just people I've seen in general, they'll just work on a skill, think oh, I've got it, and then you'll, you'll see them sort of six months later, and they're like, "Oh, it just doesn't seem, it's not clicking." And you're like, well, what does your practice look like? Well, I'm doing this, 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 <laughs> and they're not doing that thing that that they've tried to make a strength. But you're talking about it being a super strength. It's it's so true. It's so so true. Even like you with your batting, aren't you? Like as soon as you stop practicing, then you know, well, left hand batter, weren't you? Well, well, I was a bowler, so I need oh, a lot okay, of batting practice. Yeah. <laughs> so left-handed bowler, yeah. yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. It's it's true. Like, I, I actually equate it to... So one-day cricket right now, there's so many skill sets. Like, it's, essentially, you're talking about you're talking about high ball catching. That is... I'd put that in my mind as one, one of the deliveries I would bowl. It's a part of your game. It's not your all game. It's just a part of your game that can make it strength. So in cricket, like, I literally made a career out of two deliveries, one that swung and one that didn't, and then... And then in one day cricket, you have to develop slower balls. I had three different types of slower balls. I had a bouncer, and then you bowl in those slower balls at bouncer length. So you have so many different parts of your game that you could potentially work on, but you've got to pick one or two that you genuinely make a, a base level super strength. And even that, like even if it once it becomes a part of your strength and a part of your ultimately your identity, like you said, there's there's an identity behind you being good at that thing. Once you've done that, you have to just, it has to become a part of your routine, a consistent part of your routine and, and do it over and over again, just at bare minimum, like a base level, foundational level of skills. And then you can start adding some cool stuff on top and sort of like sprinkles on top of the cake, if you will. Um, but yeah, that that you do have the to constantly work on it. Yeah, the weird thing for me, like in something like high balls, for example, that for me is a fundamental part of a fullback's game. And it, I, I, it breaks me when I see so many athletically gifted fullbacks who just can't catch high balls or do it consistently. And I'm, I'm thinking, who's coaching them? Why are they not getting told to like go and practice high balls? Like it's it's literally one of your main things as jobs as a fullback, and it puts your team um, so much on the front foot or the back foot 
if you get it wrong. Like it's so important in the game now, so much kicking with defences and things like that. Like if you're not good at it, but still like, but I think people just don't hold value in those sort of fundamentals now because it's boring. Like I said, boring. You have to go and practice it. People just want to see the highlight reels and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's just a little gripe of mine. But what a land grab opportunity though. If you get it done, you make it like just water off a duck's back for you. Yeah. and be good at it like got a strong skill well, look at when Freddie, you when Freddie Stewart now sorry with England like what's his what's his super strength apart from being six foot five like he's unbelievable high balls so yeah it's just he's got to practice it yeah yeah so when you when you became so when you're now in the Harlequin squad and debuting can you remember what your debut was like did you feel nerves yeah you nervous for that it's awful I don't even remember remember if I was nervous but it didn't go well for the team, which then had a knock-on effect to me as well because it was a twig. So, so my premiership debut. This, this is what I'm thinking of my premiership debut. So I'd had I'd had a few games in the championship, which is the league below, because we'd been relegated in my academy year, and that actually helped me and a few other people like Chris Robshaw get first team appearances quicker. I think because Dean Richards came in, he liked. He liked what the young lads had about them and he could play us against kind of low opposition without being disrespectful. And then we got promoted. So I, again, I'm going back to, yeah, it, you know, I've cracked this. This is brilliant. I'm starting, <laughs> I'm starting fullback. You know, there's no problem here. The premiership came, hit me like a ton of bricks. First game, it was the old double header that used to be at Twickenham. So all the London teams would be playing there. And we had London Irish. Um, so it was my first proper game at Twickenham, like in the Premiership, London Irish, loads of internationals. So I must have been nervous. Not that I can remember too much, but but like the, the game was awful. Like we were terrible as a team. I mean, we had just come up, so we were still a bit off. I think I wasn't I wasn't bad, but I wasn't great. And there was a couple of errors that stood out. So I tried to pass to someone near our own line, who then dropped it. Um, and then, you know, it didn't look good for both of us. I think we both ended up getting dropped. And then they scored off that. And I'm just like, oh, my God, what is going on here? Um, and then off the back of that, I got I got dropped for like five or six games, I think. Um, but then I think that just added more fuel. Like I was like, right, I mean, I'm getting back in there and no one's taking off me. So that was tough to take to start with. But yeah, like I said, I think it just added fuel, fuel to the fire. Cause I just wanted to get... What about debuting for England? Same. Like? <laughs> again, again, like I had a lot. Maybe I just don't. Not very good at debuts. So again, <laughs> that so that, that was awful. Two thousand and seven, we went on tour to South Africa, and basically, some clever person at the RFU decided to book a tour to South Africa over the weekend of the Premiership semi-final, I think. Or f- and final because it was the first year of the playoffs in the Premiership, so we didn't have anyone from Wasps, Wasps Leicester, Bath I think, and someone else I can't remember who it was. Well, Wasps and Leicester were literally the whole England team back in those days. <laughs> if you remember right, like it was like mine, Johnson, wow. Lawrence, Leo, all those people. So we had like, I think there was like ten debuts on that day. We were playing South Africa in um, Bloemfontein, which is very Afrikaans, very hostile for English anyway, against the team that were going to go on and win the World Cup. Like, they were unbelievable. The team they had, De Villiers and Spies and 
I don't know, Montgomery, Percy Montgomery, people like this. There's a team went literally a year later, they won the World Cup. They were unbelievable. And they just absolutely beat that living SHIT out of us. And for me, on debut, they beat the crap out of me as well. Like thinking again, like going back to, yeah, you know, I've played a year in the Premiership, absolutely smashed it. Right. Next thing, international, let's, let's have it then. Right. I'm ready to go. I try literally first few minutes, I try and hit this short line off the nine near the ruck like on the other side of play. So we were flowing one way. I kind of hit the the negative side. And I've been doing it all year, like breaking the line, thinking I was the man. I tried to run. <laughs> Literally, I get lined up by De Villiers and um, um, it wasn't back in both. It was um, the, the the back row, the blonde hair who's played for Sarri's. I've got his name now. Anyway, they absolutely smoked me. Like I'm on the floor. Physio's having to peel me off the turf. Like, I can't breathe. Like, I'm trying to get air in. Like, honestly, it was bad. And actually, the, the night before, a load of us had got a sick bug, and I was one of them. So I was already dehydrated, you know, underweight, hadn't eaten much. Like, oh, it was just a, a, literally a nightmare from start to finish. And it, like I said, they beat us by like 50 points. We were terrible. And, yeah, I managed to get selected for the, the week after. Again, still under weather and shouldn't really have played to be honest and we got beaten up again and then yeah I uh didn't get back in with England for another year and then we went to New Zealand 2008 which was another disaster so that's three caps of absolute disaster and then I was out the squad for like four years and then that's when I was getting the feedback about my speed and physical side of the game so um when it worked tomorrow so that was a you know tough four or five years getting back into the England team so did you think in that period you were off the way you've not played for England for four or five years? Is Did you think I've, I've missed my chance? Like this is, I've sort of messed it up. Or did you genuinely still believe you could play for England? But maybe initially after, maybe the first, for the first year of 2008, maybe I thought, oh, I'm never going to get in. And then, and then like after that, it was more frustration because I was back playing well for Quinns and actually doing well. I couldn't understand why I wasn't getting in, getting back in and feedback was getting was physical side. So I start, started working on that. And then still, you know, that was getting shown on the pitch for Quinns and still not getting a chance. So that was frustrating. And I got back with the Saxons, which is the team below, with Stuart Lancaster. And then started doing well for him. And he got to know him as a person, as a player, which helped. And then, you know, funnily enough, how things work out again, he, you know, ended up with a head coach, uh, job with England so then that helped me I think mm. because they you know I wasn't getting a look in at all so it was it was it was tough it was just frustrating for me because I was playing well for Quinns and not getting anywhere not even getting into train and stuff like that so when Stuart came in he selected me because um, I was playing well for Quinns and he'd seen what I'd done with the Saxons with him and and liked me as a as a player and a person but then it was back to frustration because I was then in the squad, but not getting selected to play. And then it was on the bench. And then it was out of position on the wing. And then finally got my chance to play full work. Um <laughs> so yeah, it was it was a it was a long slog. But again, those sort of things make you graft harder, I think, as you as you all know. Yeah, those relationships you had with different coaches there, even the ones that you said that have helped you out on things like speed and stuff like that. I I know there's been conversations and, and documented about D 
different relationships you've had with coaches and sometimes even in teammates what from your experience has been some of the driving force behind good relationships that you've had with coaches that have helped you play the best and obviously there's always two sides to every story but on whether the relationship's going well or not but from your perspective as the athlete like what has driven good relationships in for a coach and athlete i think um being open and honest and transparent so even if i'm not getting selected be honest with the reason why even if it's like oh i just went with someone else because that's who i preferred okay fair enough um, you know, like Andy, friend with Harlequins, you will not play until you sort your high balls out. Um, that was honest feedback. So I went and sorted it out. I, I was always someone that liked feedback, honest feedback, not just like nothing really. Um, respect, I think, you know, just respect as a person, the way you speak to me and we speak to each other. Because I always, I believe I always show my coach. So I feel like I should have the same. Um what else? I think those are those are the two main things. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that openness is just communication as well, isn't it? I think I've yeah. had scenarios with good and bad coaches where the communication is great, and it's been some of it's been very subpar, and yeah. it's and that that can because I think as an athlete, you don't need another reason to tell yourself another negative story about yourself so it's very helpful when a coach is just telling you as it is like you said there even if it's critical feedback that's that's basically you're not good enough to do this we don't believe you are and you need to do this to get better as much as that may sting you can do something about it because you just know where you lie when you don't hear anything or you don't know that's where you can make up scenarios and you can just fabricate something or oh well maybe i'm not good at this or that and you could you could end up working in the wrong direction yeah i think i think even the respect thing is probably even bigger for me just thinking about it now um the only coach you probably the coach you're referring to is probably eddie jones which i've you know been quite open and honest from my side of the things um like i said there's two sides of every story but the reason that broke down there is because of just the way I felt he spoke to me towards the end. It was like, as soon as he was done with me, he's kind of switched and, or got even worse in the way he spoke to me. And I thought being with him for four years, he should understand how I was as a person, an overthinker, someone that always gave everything um, to, to training and playing and how much he would always refer when he spoke to me early on, how much he knew I loved playing for England which was obvious like everything I did was about playing for England. Like I loved it. Like it was everything for me. And he knew that. So why would he treat and talk to me a certain way, especially towards the end when he didn't want to pick me anymore because he knew how hard it would hit me. It was almost like he was doing it in a certain way to make himself justify doing it in a weird way. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, athletes deserve certain respect if they're giving everything doing everything you say that was another thing i did it always did everything he said so try and get feedback take on his feedback if he was honest i don't think i would have he could ever say i didn't try and take on his feedback in the right way and go and you know work as hard as i could on those, those things so uh, that goes for any coach so then why would then you speak to someone that's like that a certain way I could understand if I was an absolute arsehole 
causing trouble, getting up to all sorts, doing the wrong thing, being negative, whatever. I could understand that, but I, I don't think I was. So I think that's why it's disappointing for me and why it hurts so much at the end. Um, so, yeah, it was tough. Do you, do you get some form of closure from it at all? Do you sort of, can you sort of just look back at it now and, and, and be like, that was something I've learned from or just was what it was? I've definitely learned from it. Yeah, definitely learned from yeah. it. Closure, I suppose, ugh, again, like, you know, it's like, it's hard to get closure, isn't it? Because I don't get another opportunity. It's so to- hard. So hard. If I got picked yeah. for England tomorrow, then you kind of like, right, closure. But that was it for me. So, um, but it's not like I sit here now going, oh my God, I missed on the World Cup and he was being an arsehole. So I shouldn't say that. So it's edit that out. He was being nasty <laughs> to me. <laughs> Again, that doesn't sound great. But you know what I mean? He was speaking to me in a, in a certain way that I didn't think was appropriate or, yeah, just the right way to, to a person, really. Um, and my wife was listening to the call. So, she, you know, she's not one to 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 tell me what I want to hear. Like, she's probably my most brutal, uh, what's the word, person to be towards me if I'm, if I'm saying critique. wrong. Yeah, critique, that's it. She, she, so I said, so I, so when I, the last phone call I had with Eddie, I was like, listen to this. So I put on a loudspeaker while I speak to him and she was just like, oh my God, I see what you mean. Like, he was, yeah, bad. And it was in a bad, it was in a bad, it was in a bad period of my career because I knew it was the end for England. Like I wasn't going to get picked. For, it was in the end of a World Cup year, and then going to get a chance to go to a World Cup, um, which hurt, especially after two thousand and fifteen. How bad that was. Um, so yeah, there was just no human side to that conversation when he knew how hard it would be for someone like me with it, all those yeah. things taken into content. I'm going to take a little left turn with your career. So you've you've you're now 37. You've been in the game, like you said, 19 years. This is going to be a very generalised question, but what do you think has been some of the secret to your source for being in this game for so long? There's probably a few few things. Probably goes to being resilient just taking all the knocks and coming back for more um because i can vouch for a career being up and down like we all the stuff we just spoken about like it's for me it's it felt like a slog at times it's not been like that at all it's been so up up and down like a rock so being resilient just just coming back for more and just sticking with it getting good people around you so recognizing who those good people are and how they're going to help you to succeed what you want to succeed. So like Margot Wells, for example, on the physical side of things. My wife, you know, things that people like that, getting good people around you. Um what else? I think just I think just having that that focus of Find out what is going to get you to where you want to get to, and then bringing that consistency into it. When you find those things, I guess just thinking about what we've spoken about. So, what is what is it you want? What what's your goal? How are you going to get there? Who's going to help you do that? And then being consistent with it because it will be boring at times and it'll be frustrating. But if you have that resilience, like I spoke about, you have that consistency and that good habits and how you're going to get there. You know, I do believe 
with the work ethic as well like it's easy to say but like for me there's nothing second to work ethic like look at my transition stuff you know i'm just trying to throw myself into it like i've done my sporting career and that starts with hard work there's no substitute for it you're not going to get anywhere i come talk to you and you know this like you've had a successful cricket career so you know that nothing comes second to to work ethic Mm. do did you rugby gets a big conversation around the physicality of it but did you ever and i've asked people about you and your career and one word that comes up is professionalism so if you're looking after yourself professionally physically because obviously it's going to take that to do the amount of games that you've played just i can't imagine the impact it's had on your body but the was there anything you did mentally to prepare for games did you have like a mental prep was there things that got you into a good place to give you whether it's confidence reduce nerves or or just uh, whether it's planning out what you're going to do not really and that is actually probably something that if i got to start again i would bring into 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 my game because i think that i could have done better maybe if i'd had that mental side worked on better so things like what we talk about now with the um visualization and meditation all that sort of stuff i wish i'd learned that early on on in my career and i still don't really do it now because it's not habit now like i'm i think i'm too far gone but i think that would have i think that would have been a big had a big big impact on me like i did with my physical side of the game like i really focused on that i think i, I wish i'd realized the importance of the mental side and done that i think only thing on the mental side and it kind of flips into the physical a bit is I was a big believer in my preparation, which we kind of spoke about before. Like I knew that if I did everything spot on in the week in terms of my preparation, you know, this, you know, this many high balls and work doing my work with Margot or doing my recovery the right way after and, and certain things that worked for me after sessions, not going out for late dinners or eating the wrong thing. I knew all those little things would add up and then that fed into my mental side because then I'd be confident going into the game on Saturday and then the Saturday was the easy bit. Like that was the, mm. probably the enjoyment bit most of the time unless we, unless we lost or it was a stinking game. But that was the, the slog and the hard stuff was in the week, you know, constantly thinking, right, what do I need to do in my preparation? Right, I need to do this, you know, planning. And, um, when I can I see Margot between quiz sessions and, have I done enough high ball work? My kick in? Have I had a massage on certain days when I've needed it? Have I done my stretching? Have I done the gym work I need? That that becomes a bit of a slog and mentally fatiguing by the end of the season. Pretty pretty um mentally tired, but that fed into my confidence in going in the weekend because I've no, I've, I've done all the work. Like I'm ready. I'm I'm good to go now. So yeah. It's, it even sounds like with your trips to Worcester that you were doing and trying to go to the university and you're, you're quite a prepped person. Like you're very prepared in sort of getting, making sure you're turning over every rock in that sense. Did you have any anything that you did outside of rugby, like a hobby, something that you used to, as a, a bit of a go-to to relax? No, see, this is the thing again, like I, I thought going through my career, anything like that would take away my focus from the, the soul. Interesting. Um, which probably isn't the right thing to do. Actually, it isn't the right thing to do because I think I missed out on leaning into my comfort zone and doing other things. And yeah, like 
Whereas now, back into my career, because I'm doing the masters and connecting with people and trying to push myself out of my comfort zone more, that's actually helped my development as well. So maybe I should have done that through other parts of my career. And also as well with the mental slog of things, like you do just get into this cycle of just doing the same stuff all the time. I never had any hobbies or anything like that. So yeah, it was probably another thing that I wish I'd kind of realised the value of early on in my career. But saying that though, if I hadn't been as focused as I was in my career, I don't think I would have played for England because, you know, like I said, I'm not as skillful as others. I'm not as physically gifted as others. So I had to then just narrow in and, and anything that I thought would take away from my rugby, I was gone. <laughs> it's so true though like I lived that as well you cut everything out you sacrifice you you really do and I and I was I was at a school this my old school this morning actually talking to a, a group of athletes and they're asking sort of what do you what do you have to do to make it in a professional game and my answer always is you genuinely have to sacrifice things that others aren't willing to because you're trying to do something that other people want to do but may not get the chance to do because if everyone was the same and everyone was doing everything the same they would just we'd all be doing it so you have to sacrifice yeah you're 100% right like so there's so much sacrifice still there still is now like like I said I'm doing that in my transition I've so much sacrifice even now because I'm trying to get myself into a place to move into another career and still trying to be an athlete you know a rugby player now but I do wonder if there was that maybe that little five percent like I said doing stuff that would get me out of my comfort zone and pushing myself more would have fed into my rugby. You know, there's things like public speaking, which I'm trying to push myself to do a bit more now. Like I'm actually absolutely petrified doing. Like I didn't, I would have no interest in doing that. You know, academic stuff, you know, that would, I would have never done that, you know, early on, I, you know, most of my career, because that, you know, that's, a, that's taken me away from my focus. So maybe, you know, I could have kept that 5% of something else other than rugby and then then you can kind of tailor it to if you feel comfortable with five percent maybe there's a ten percent where you can you know ninety percent rugby there's a little ten percent or maybe it's 25 for some people so finding that percentage but i think i was like a hundred rugby which was yeah yeah i don't know if that's the right way to do things yeah well you mentioned there about and i'm very conscious of time so you're, you're talking about transitioning there and you've I've been following your journey on LinkedIn and you've been you've been openly talking about things that you're doing away from rugby so you're doing your masters you've been going into football the ID world the talent ID world and I think even from my experience having tra- transitioned out of sport one thing you can easily do is kind of take for granted some of the habits and routines that you had as a pro and think like where are they going to be useful in the world and actually what we class as the norm are just so out of the out of this world for other people um what what sort of excites you because i know it's a scary time as well I, I understand what it feels like what is there anything that's really exciting you about what you could potentially bring uh, from your rugby career into your next chapter that is a good question uh the, the thing that is, excites me is probably not one thing. It's just like I have a belief I can have an impact in what I want to get an opportunity. But I think it's just 
I think it's just the excitement of where it can go and whether I can make that as successful as successful as my rugby career, not just be defined by that. That's mm. exciting, but also nerve wracking because I would love that if it was like, oh, it's Mike Brown, the whatever. Oh, we used to play a bit of rugby as well. Whereas at the moment, it's just Mike Brown, the rugby player. Do you know what I mean? And then as soon as that's gone, know you, mean. you know, like, what am I? So I would love to have two successful careers of two parts of my life where I can go, oh, I did this, but also you know, now I'm doing this or I have done this. That's exciting. But also, as you'll know, like nerve wracking and there's that, that uncertainty because you don't know what how it's going to look or what it's going to look like. And you have a certain age where it's quite unusual to be in this kind of space at 37 for me or I don't know what you like 33 with you or something 26 that's actually. I'm 33 now I was 26 yeah. when I retired yeah mm. so, I mean that's so early to retire do you know what I mean that's like mm. you're 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 a retiree like yeah it's crazy, crazy when you like, see people <laughs> crazy isn't it like you're having to restart again at 26 whereas most people are like on their pathway and then for me now like I'm having to start again at 37 um getting on a pathway somewhere so it's like a strange thing to kind of get your head around um but yeah it's exciting at the same time i think the one thing that i i really have embraced because when i finished as well i mean i had to physically recover and then i had to sort of i went through um, I just literally went through a really dark place mentally because I had what we were talking about where I identified only as a cricketer. Like that was just purely who who Lewis was. And it's almost that that whole experience, the work I'm at the then studying that I did. I mean, I traveled to Hawaii, became yoga mindfulness coach, and I did all these different things that just to sort of self-educate myself and and learn about different parts of me that I didn't know about. And now the course that I've created and the work that I do is almost built out of what I needed and I, and I wanted for that person, but also knowing how much value it can bring to to moving forward. And I think along that journey, one one element I embraced was a beginner's mindset. So I started learning the guitar. I started doing that and I started learning Spanish and just being rubbish at them and just like embracing that feeling like I need to be rubbish at something because I've been good at something really good at something and I'm not going to be I'm going to now come into the world maybe with a bit of ego thinking I kind of should be good at something but I need to be ready to be rubbish at something I need to be at the very early rung so I used hobbies that I enjoyed to kind of teach myself a little bit more of that beginner's mindset and like okay this is like playing a guitar and getting it wrong just sounds rubbish like your friends and family will tell you like that sounded awful <laughs> and but then you can you get over it can you just kind of harness okay the mindset I had when I was an athlete can I harness that resilience that kind of drive and I openly will admit that the first sort of four or five years out of my finishing cricket I didn't do that I didn't I was like okay I'm going to park cricket and that was something that happened to me and I was kind of pushing it away and what's really held me in good stead in the last couple of years has actually thinking back to what was the 15-year-old me like? What was then the 18-year-old, the 22, 23, like that guy who was really driven and what would he do now? What would he want to do now? If Even if he, like, if he hadn't, if this thing that he's driving towards now was his main aim and goal, not cricket, not rugby, what would that person's attitude do right now in this scenario? And that helped me 
massively in the last couple of years because I was like, right, oh wow, I have got all of these decent resources and uh, and traits about me that I can hang on, and none of that actually requires me to throw or catch a ball at any level. It's just all about me. It's just that's you, and I think. I guess that might be some encouragement for you to go what are all those things that we've sort of spoken about in this podcast like that those are so valuable and people value that in in a in the space outside of sport as well because by default being in elite sport you're you're unique yeah it's weird, it's weird. like I agree with all that so like, like I, this kind of refers to what I was saying about treating this transition as as I did my rugby career so that's what I'm trying to do, you know, that beginner and the work ethic and doing all that. I definitely feel like a beginner and all the both the courses I've been doing. So for the last two years with everything we're doing in the Masters, then now on this football course, definitely feel like a beginner because they're all in a talent ID uh, departments within football. So I feel like I've got such imposter syndrome all the time at the moment. Um, <laughs> no idea what some things are going on, but it's like, it's great when you've done it and then doing all the stuff like on this FA course is very practical. So we just done negotiation module. So we were doing role plays negotiation. I'm like, this is, I've never done anything like this. So I was so nervous, but actually I, I like loved it. Like got such a buzz. So just doing things like that. And then as well, like, like you said, remembering all the stuff that you've learned as a, as a player, that's quite, I find quite hard at the moment. Like I, cause you kind of think, Oh, I was just a player. Like I don't, you don't see what value some of the stuff you have, but other people. When you get, like I said, I get real imposter syndrome to sit there and go, "Oh yeah, I was an athlete, so I need to do this and that and that." So I find it hard to get the stuff I've learned as a rugby player out of my head into conversations or on play paper. And yes, that's that's hard sometimes. Yeah, no, it's 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 work, but I promise you, there's moments where it will just pop into your mind, and it can take people asking questions like I see my work now as I ask very simple questions but they're not so easy to answer and then usually because they're just about people they're just about you and like sometimes it takes that little bit of introspection to to go okay well what has got genuinely got me to this place right now what did I do or almost recall a story in your mind what a moment when I, I always think back to a I, t I retell this story of me when I was about 15, 16 and I'd broken my back and I needed to rehabilitate myself back to being fittest and strongest. And I did similar to what you did. I went, I snuck into the Sussex gym to find out who the fittest and strongest best trainer was. And I was like, looked at all the scores. I was like, right, there he is. What's his gym program? And I just copied it and then did added more on. So like my parents, when I was living at home, I would, I would be at the front door at like 10 o'clock at night about to go out on a five mile run or something and i'd go out on this run rain snow whatever and then I, but throughout it i was like visualizing all of these different things that were going to ha i wanted to happen so me being handed my cap and my shirt and then i sort of would visualize whether it was games and and, and essentially all the good things i wanted to happen and i just did it over and over again and then eventually all of those eventualities became real uh, I even did a weird one time I, or a few times I started writing an article about a newspaper about me making it as a pro, overcoming my condition and then getting a contract. And then The Guardian eventually did that article later on in life. But I tell that story and I look back and go, okay, well, what was, if I was to describe that 15-year-old lad standing at the door, like from a third-person view, 
how would I describe him? And I'd be like, okay, he was ultimately committed. He was determined. He was he was willing to do something even when his family or inner voices were genuinely saying, stay inside, don't go. And then what else was I doing? I was visualizing. I was I was positively reinforcing things that I wanted to happen in my in my life. I didn't guarantee any of that was going to happen, but I just put myself in the best case. And so I take some of that. And then if I've got a, a, a an athlete, a business, a student that I might be working with, and I see them needing that and go, okay, or they can't figure out where that lies in their life, go, okay, tell us a story. Tell us when you've perhaps done something where you wanted it and you tried hard and you you bring it out of them. It just it's kind of like reconnecting with them. You just end up reconnecting with that that version of them. And like, okay, yeah, that there is actually value in me in that sense. I've I've forgotten yeah. that because we're so good at telling ourselves stories that are so negative. It's like, why would anyone want to talk to me or why would anyone want to yeah. find value in what I can do? And there's yeah. always something. Definitely had that going on in my mind sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because you just think, oh, are they going to care what you've been through or what you've got to offer? Yeah, I much prefer finding out about all the other people on the courses and stuff and taking all that. I need to contribute more. I do need to do that. I need that's that's my next thing, pushing myself to contribute more. That's yeah, fine. yeah. I promise you, you've got you all have stories there. Like just live them. So I always finish. You, this has been awesome, Mike. Thank you so much for your time, <laughs> especially for listeners that don't know you're sitting on some sleep deprivation at the moment. So <laughs> get you get you off to bed. I always ask people just before they finish off, is there a is there something you're either reading or a quote that you've heard, a documentary that you might have watched or a film that you love that has inspired you at all? Well, when I see quotes, I usually take a picture and put it on my phone. So let me see what the last one was. <laughs> let me have a look. Um, so the last one I've got. The last one I got actually was quite interesting. So it's it's from um, it's posted by the high performance podcast guy um Damien, the uh, the psychologist guy. Hmm. He put people who want to see you win will help you win. Remember that, which I found very interesting for the the moment I am in at the moment. Who who's who's like come forward to help me at my most needy time probably in in a long time people that I know really well but also who I don't know at at all well but have you know been offered to help my transition or someone like John Turner who I grew up with at Harlequins who's who's been a massive support in a hard time because he he was the guy that had his hip you know hip replaced at such a young age and had to retire so he's kind of been through it so people like that but also just reflecting on our conversation those people that helped with my rugby career so like gavin duffy for example you know he didn't need to help me it ultimately cost him a place in harlequin's team or margot wells i mean she's someone that doesn't just take the money off someone she has to like want to help them because they want to put in the work and stuff so people like that so yeah so that, that just resonated with me that was my last one it, it might not be the best one i've got but no that's that's all we need. Something recent. That's that's awesome. Look, where's the where's the best place if people want to follow what you're doing? Get in touch. Where's the best place for me to to send them? Yeah, LinkedIn. I think is where you know I really like to connect with people now. What I really enjoy putting what I'm 
doing on Instagram, Twitter aren't really my thing, to be honest, is they've turned a bit, you know, unless you want to be on Love Island. <laughs> Instagram's all right. Twitter's, just, yeah, not for me. LinkedIn's the one, yeah, like I'm trying to put as much as I can about what I'm doing, trying to connect with different people across all industries, really, but obviously a lot in sport. That's, yeah, that's probably, that's that's the one for me. Awesome. We'll put that, I'll put that in the show notes and um, and, and, and send people that way. But Mike, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. I've, um, I've really, really appreciated it. And, and thank you for being open, honest. And it's probably one, definitely been one of the most open and honest conversations I've had on the show. And, and it takes strength and vulnerability to do that. So I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. It'd be great to um, actually meet up and have another chat at some point soon. I think there's more we can talk about. So it'd be interesting to do that. No doubt. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you.